Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen. Please have a seat. Well, brothers and sisters, uh, once again, uh, welcome to St. Mary's Cathedral this evening. Uh, it's lovely to see you all here, uh, and thank you for joining us. Uh, can I get you to keep your uh, booklets open at page 13, page 14, in that uh, uh, reading that we've just had from John chapter 20? Uh, and if I could ask you also to uh, open your bulletin to page 6 and 7, uh, where we will find an outline uh, of the sermon. So, the... Order of service booklet, page 13 to 14, where John 20 is, and then the uh, bulletin on page 6 and 7, uh, where you'll see the sermon outline. And let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have indeed raised Christ from the dead. And thank you that we can come together this evening to, to celebrate uh, this joyous news. And we pray uh, that your spirit uh, would be at work among us now as we consider uh, the words that you've given us in the scriptures about this resurrection. And we pray that you show Christ to us that we would see him revealed there, that we would believe in him, that we would love him, and that we would live our lives in light of his resurrection. So help me, I pray, to uh, preach your word faithfully and helpfully uh, and in the power of your spirit. Uh, and please, would you work in each one of our hearts that we might respond to Christ rightly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a life-changing event, isn't it? In fact, it's one of those points in human history that changes the course of history. And when we come to know and believe it for ourselves, it changes our whole lives as well. We have in the Bible a number of accounts of the resurrection which complement each other, and we've just heard read the account recorded by the Apostle John. It's written partly from his own eyewitness perspective and partly from the eyewitness perspective of Mary Magdalene. So it seems likely that he has spent a significant time with her on this matter. She may even have been with him when he writes. And so he can vividly portray what happened that first Easter Sunday from her eyes in verse 1 and 2 of our passage, and then again in verses 10 to 18, and then his own eyes, his own recollection uh, in the middle. We know that John was a disciple of Jesus, brother of James, son of Zebedee, one of the twelve apostles. Although when he writes his gospel, he, he modestly avoids using his name wherever he can. Because the deepest and most important thing for John was that he was loved by Jesus. That's, that's what shaped his identity at the very core of his being. And so he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Mary Magdalene means Mary who comes from Magdala. Magdala being a little fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. 
And we know from the other Gospels that Jesus had cast out seven demons from her. And that she, with a number of other women, followed Jesus around, supporting him and the twelve disciples out of their own means. In fact, they were a group who followed Jesus all the way from up in Galilee down to Jerusalem to care for his needs. And they were there when Jesus was crucified, watching from a distance. Now, that's what we know about Mary Magdalene. You might have heard all kinds of speculative things about Mary Magdalene based on the Gnostic so-called Gospels, but they, in fact, were written 100, 200 years later. It's so long after the events that they are not really useful in telling us about what really happened to Jesus, but what they do to help us is to understand more about the sex from which they came and the agenda that they had uh, to try and hijack the Christian faith. The Gospels in the Bible, on the other hand, are written by eyewitnesses or people close to them in the lifetime of those who are present at the events. Reliable people, who, many of whom would, would give their lives because they knew what was said is, was true. And so you can trust the historical accounts of the scriptures and it would be very foolish to reject these and instead believe these spurious gospels that come much later with so little connection to the, to the actual people involved. So let's have a look and see what these two eyewitnesses, Mary and John, have to tell us about the events of that first Easter Sunday. Before we do that, let us just briefly recall what's happened up to this point in time. Uh, we saw on Friday that Jesus had been crucified as King of the Jews. And the way that it all happened, was way it, it lined up with the Old Testament prophecy. And that showed us at least three things about Jesus. That he was the Passover lamb, the one who died as the substitutionary sacrifice to take away the sins of his people. That he was the cleansing fountain whose death can wash us clean and, and make us clean before a holy God. And that Jesus was God's promised king who would eventually rise again. But in the meantime, the dead body of Jesus was bound in linen cloths with 75 pounds of spices and buried in a nearby garden tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And all that had happened back at Good Friday. But now, in chapter 20, verse 1, it's the first day of the week, Sunday. And Mary comes to the tomb. Now, we know she's not alone because she uses the plural we when she's reporting about it later in verse 2. And this is confirmed by the other gospel accounts which list the women who are with her. But right now we are seeing things from her eyes. And all she's focusing on is the body in the tomb. It's dark when she gets there. And imagine her shock when she sees that the stone which was meant to block access to the tomb has been taken away. And to Mary's mind, this can only mean one thing. Not only had they crucified Jesus, but now to add sorrow to grief, they've taken his body away as well. And so she turns and runs back to the disciples. And she says to Simon Peter and to John himself in verse 2, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. 
Oh, Peter and John want to investigate this. Uh, they start running to the tomb, probably leaving Mary behind. And, and John runs faster. He gets there first. And, and in verse 5, he, he stoops down to look in and he, he sees the linen cloth lying there, but, but he doesn't go in. And then Peter arrives following him. And you know, impulsive Peter laughs. We're not surprised. He charges straight into the tomb to get a view of what's going on. And then eventually John follows him as well. And what do they see when they get in there? Well, look at verse, end of verse 6. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Remember when Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead back in John 11? Uh, Lazarus came out of the tomb with his hands and feet wrapped in the strips of linen and the cloth around his face. But with Jesus' resurrection, this is different. The linen cloths and the face cloth are, are still there in the tomb. Now think about it. There's a lot of linen to cope with, with 75 pounds of spices wrapped in it. Certainly anyone who might have stolen Jesus' body was not going to go to all the trouble of unwrapping it first. It would have been quite a job unwrapping all that linen from a dead body, even if it wasn't for the sticky spices making it all the more difficult. But the strips of linen are just lying there, as if Jesus' body has just disappeared, as if it's passed through the grave clothes. Some people have suggested the spices would have even kept the grave clothes the shape of Jesus' body, but we don't actually know that. What we do know is that the cloth that was covering Jesus' head was folded up and and placed separately, neatly, neatly put away by someone who doesn't seem to be in a hurry. And John, John, when he sees this, when he sees the empty tomb, when he sees the way the grave clothes are lying, it says, he saw and believed. He saw and believed. He believed in the resurrection. Though his faith is at this point, it's still based on what he saw. Uh, verse 9 says, For they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. That will come later. At this stage, his faith is only that far. Meanwhile, in verse 10, as the dis well, actually, the disciples go back home. They think, well, there's not much point staying here. The grave is empty, the body's gone, and so they leave. In the meantime, Mary comes back to the scene. Maybe she's emotionally moved by the grief. She wants to be near the place where her, where her master was buried. Or maybe she wants to investigate, find out what's happened to the body. But whatever the reason she comes back, she's, she's overcome with grief as she does. And so she stands there in verse 11, weeping outside the tomb. We don't know how long she's there before, as she weeps, she, she stoops to look in. And when she does, she sees something that was not shown to the men. In verse 12, she sees two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and, and one at the feet. Obviously, they weren't there or they weren't visible when, when Peter and John had looked inside, but there they are. And they must have appeared human because G Mary has a conversation with them. Uh, they ask her in verse 13, Woman, 
Why are you weeping? What they know, and she doesn't, is that Easter Sunday at the empty tomb of Jesus is not the place for tears. But Mary thinks she's lost her Lord and now lost his body. She says to them, verse 13, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And little does she know that her Lord is actually standing behind her. And she must realize there's something going on because she, she turns around and, and she sees Jesus standing there, but she doesn't know it's him. Maybe in Jesus' resurrected body is sufficiently transformed that she doesn't recognize him at once, or, or maybe her eyes are supernaturally closed so she cannot see, or maybe it's just dark and she's been crying. But that question again, same question. Jesus says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And then he adds, Whom are you seeking? She assumes he's the gardener. So she says to him, Sir, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus says to her, verse 16, he says to her, Mary... Back in John 10, Jesus said that the good shepherd knows his sheep by name. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. And here is one sheep who knows her master's voice when she calls her name. And when he calls her name, she, verse 16, she turns to him, she cries out, Rabboni, teacher, my Lord is alive. No wonder his body's not there. He's risen. What joy. And then Jesus says something to her that, well, I find hard to understand. In verse 17, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. There are a number of possibilities as to what this could mean. Let me just give you one, the one I think is probably right, but I warn you that I'm not sure. Jesus is probably saying, look, don't hold on to me because the time hasn't come yet for me to ascend to the Father. So you don't have to hang on as if I'm about to disappear permanently. I'm not about to do that yet. You'll, you'll see me again before the ascension. But you go and tell the disciples and I am ascend to the Father. Well, whatever he meant by what he said there, do you see what's happened? Jesus has chosen not one of the apostles, but Mary Magdalene to be the very first witness of the resurrection. She was the one who would tell the apostles themselves that Jesus is alive. And so in verse 18, she goes in obedience to the risen Christ and announces to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And he, she tells them all the things he said to her. Isn't it wonderful how Jesus both institutes and cuts across establishment? He appoints the 12 apostles, they are his official leaders, yes, that's, that's all right, but he's quite happy to bypass them and appear first to this woman who loves him. 
and make her the very first human being to announce the wonderful news of his resurrection. So what do we learn about the resurrection from this passage in its, in its context in John's Gospel? Well, we're at point three on the outline. There are a number of things we see here. First of all, we see that, that, the, that the resurrection is a physical event, isn't it? It's not just some kind of spiritual thing, something that happened in the hearts of the apostles. He, 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 reigned in, he, he resurrected in my heart and, or, you know, in my, in my, in my thinking or, or something like that. No, 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 this, this is real. This, this tomb is empty. The body is gone. Uh, transformed, yes, but, but it still continues with this previously dead body. This resurrection is a physical, bodily event. And we also see it's a historical event. It can be historically investigated. For both John and Mary, there was the circumstantial evidence of the empty tomb, but that in itself was not enough. John believed when he saw the evidence of the, the linen cloths. Mary believed when she, when she met her risen Lord. And if we look at the evidence, well, I think the evidence is compelling. We've got both the circumstantial evidence of the empty tomb and the eyewitness evidence of all the people who saw Jesus and, and were willing to testify to that and, and, and pay for that with their lives. Different pieces of evidence, both pointing to one conclusion. If you're not sure about that, come back this Thursday night for a public lecture on this topic. The evidence of Jesus historically verifiable. But faith based on historical probabilities, like faith based on miracles, needs to grow beyond that. It needs to become fully committed to God's revelation in His Word. Remember how John himself acknowledged that he believed because, because of the evidence, because he saw, because he hadn't really understood the Scriptures. He would need to grow further. And he would find out later that the resurrection of Jesus is indeed an event that fulfills the Scriptures. Psalm 16 says, God will not let His Holy One see decay. Psalm 22 indicates a rescue for the forsaken, crucified King. Isaiah 53 speaks of the servant who suffers and dies for the sins of others and yet is then vindicated and the will of God prospers in His hands. There are many prophecies and types and pictures that point forward to the resurrection. So much so that the Apostle Paul could say to the Jews in Acts 13, what God promised to our fathers, He has fulfilled for us, his, their children, by raising Jesus from the dead. Peter and John didn't understand it at the time. Though by the day of Pentecost, not too long later, it was crystal clear in Peter's mind. So much so that he could preach this to thousands of people. And Luke actually solves that little mystery for us when he tells us that the risen Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures as He personally showed them how the, the Old Testament and all the law and the prophets and the Psalms pointed to Him in this resurrection period. And so the resurrection, and this is a point between point B and point C, resurrection is an event that fulfills the Scriptures. And then we see the resurrection as a God's vindication of his king. If we zoom out a little bit from this passage, and remember the previous one, we remember that Jesus was executed for treason, 
for being king. But, but God vindicated him. God says in the resurrection, this Jesus who was crucified, who was put the king of the Jews, actually, he really is my king. He is the one who has been promised. He is that true king who will judge the world, whose kingdom will have no end. Resurrection shows that Jesus really is that king. And then it shows that death is not the end. Earlier on in John's gospel, Jesus had said that the day will come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That will be the day of judgment. The day when the risen Jesus himself will be the judge. And each and one of us, each, every person who has ever lived, will give an account to him. And we will be judged and divided between those who have eternal life and, and those who will be condemned. And we know that day will surely come. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus is a preview of that. It's a, it's a proof that it can happen and it will happen, just like Jesus said. And then we see that the resurrection shows that, that Jesus' sacrifice has indeed dealt with sin completely. Again, we zoom out, we see the previous passage, and anyone who was here on Good Friday in any of our services would have seen from John 19 that, that Jesus is the Passover lamb, the sacrifice that God gave to, to deal with our sins because, because on the cross he took our sin, our punishment, our guilt, our condemnation for us so that we can be cleansed and forgiven if we trust in him. And the fact that he rose again shows that what he said on the cross when he said, it is finished, was really right. His work was indeed complete. God was pleased with the sacrifice that he offered. And he gives that seal of approval by raising him from the dead. He has completely dealt with sin, exhausted the punishment. Our sin has no more hold on him. And so we can be sure that if we trust him, there is no condemnation for us either. And finally, we see that the resurrection has personal consequences. The resurrection changed Mary Magdalene's grief into joy and made her an evangelist, someone who tells this good news to other people. Peter and John would spend the rest of their lives proclaiming the resurrection as, as would the other disciples that Jesus would later meet. And friends, when we come to know the truth of the resurrection, our lives can never be the same again. Everything, everything's different. Our perspective on life is different. Our priorities are different. It's like we see the, the world with, a, with, with different lenses. Because now, serving our king is the number one priority in life. Because we can be confident to follow this king. He has defeated death. And we no longer think in terms of 70 or 80 or 90 years. No, 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 we don't think like that anymore. We, we think in terms of eternity. We know we will be raised and we will be the Christ forever. And so to, to make sacrifice for the, for the gospel now, well, that's, that's a small thing, not a big thing in light of eternity. Being godly now, well, that's an important thing, not just a side thing. And we can tell others about Jesus. We don't have to have official positions and titles to do that. We don't have to be apostles like Peter and John. If we love Jesus like Mary, then like her, we can tell others that he is risen. And if we believe in the resurrection, surely that is what we want to do. But if we believe in the resurrection... We will also know that to, 
to lose our way now, to fall away from Jesus now, to, to stop trusting Jesus to the end, well, well, that would be the biggest tragedy, wouldn't it? And so we would want to make sure that we keep on trusting in Jesus and his death for us to the very end of our lives. And we would want to help each other to do the same by, by gathering each week and reminding each other of what, what Jesus has done for us. And we will want to work together to reach the world with a message that Jesus is alive, that death has been defeated, sin has been dealt with, and the way to an intimate relationship with the God who loves us has been opened up through him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is risen. And that is the greatest news in all the world. Are we living in light of it? Or do we live as if Jesus was still in the grave? Let's pray.